This morning on our fourth Sunday of Lent, I want to preach a message that I've entitled, Surviving the Scenic Route. Surviving the Scenic Route. Have you ever noticed that God does miraculous things, and then, Lord, with all due respect, he does annoying things? Have you ever noticed that God heals, except when he doesn't? That God miraculously provides finances, and then a new unexpected bill emerges. God ends 400 years of slavery in Egypt in a relatively short period of time. You would think that he would get them and almost like beam them right into Canaan land. You'd think he'd just... You know, if he could take Philip and the, the deacon and, 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 and transport him, like beam me up, Scotty, certainly he could do it for Israel. But we understand that God took Israel on the scenic route. God can be exasperatingly inefficient sometimes. I got a yup and no amens. But it's true. If you have a Bible and you want to try to read it in the dim room, you can join me in Numbers 21. Numbers 21 is our Old Testament text this morning. Many of you know that in Numbers 13, spies were sent into Canaan land, and 10 of them came back with a bad report. And the nation of Israel, smitten with democratic ideals, decided to go with the majority. And God said, well, you will die in the wilderness and your children will go into the promised land. That incident, Numbers chapter 13, was about two years after the Exodus. Two years after the Exodus. The story that we're going to read this morning in Numbers 21 is about 38 years after that. We are on the cusp of crossing Jordan. And this is what happened, starting in the fourth verse. From Mount Hur, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And here's a key phrase, but the people became impatient on the way. The people spoke against God and against their pastor. I'm sorry, Moses. (laughs) Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we detest this miserable food. Then the Lord sent poisonous serpents. Underline that in your Bible. The Lord sent poisonous serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We have sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord to take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a poisonous serpent and set it on a pole. 
And everyone who is bitten shall look at it and live. So Moses made a serpent of bronze and put it upon a pole. And whenever a serpent bit someone, that person would look at the serpent of bronze and live. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I thank you for these scriptures that we have in our language. Thank you for the Holy Spirit who illuminates and guides as we walk through this passage. I pray this morning that you'd give me the right words. Pray more than that, you'd give all of us the ears to hear what the Spirit would say to us in this room. Change us, transform us, little by little, into the image of your Son, in whose name we pray. And everybody said, One of the most misquoted and misunderstood phrases that you'll hear is this. God will not give you more than you can handle. Mm. You know, if you've got a friend that's going through a hard time, please don't tell them that. That's a free one. You could just put that aside. That's not in my notes. If you've got a friend going through a hard time, some people in this room are going through a hard time this morning jobs and money and health and relationships, the last thing you need is one of Job's friends coming over your house and saying, well, God won't give you more than you can handle. The devil is a liar. <laughs> now, that text is ripped out of 1 Corinthians chapter six, chapter 10, starting at verse 6. And it, it points to the text from the Old Testament this morning. Paul says that these things from Numbers 21, occurred as examples for us so that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not become idolaters as some of them did, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink, and they rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. Here's another must not. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. And do not complain as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. These things happened to them to serve as an example. And they were written down to instruct us on whom the ends of the ages have come. So if you think you're standing Watch out, because you might be like an Israelite. That's what he's saying. No testing has overtaken you. That also didn't happen to the Israelites. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tested beyond your strength. Oh, no. mm, that's different. <laughs> he will not let you be tested beyond your strength. But with the testing, he'll provide the way out. But here's the phrase we never end with. So that you may be able to endure it. <laughs> you see, when we say that God won't give you more than you can handle, it should not be used to suggest that God doesn't want life to be unbearably hard. It shouldn't be confused with an American sense of convenience or modern technological ideals of the way life ought to flow. 
the blood of the martyrs might want to speak to us this morning. Let's bring it into the present day and say we have brothers and sisters this morning in the Congo. We have brothers and sisters this morning in Pakistan or Syria who might say, you know, I don't know about this God not giving you more than you can handle stuff. Hello? This is not about life being convenient or life being easy. This is about the fact that God will not put you in a situation where he sets you up to sin. God won't do that. He won't test you to the point that if you sin in the test, it was his fault. We have to read the whole thing in the context. What Paul is saying, listen, when Israelites complained in the wilderness, it wasn't because God made things too hard for them. Paul's not saying, oh, God won't give you a life that's too hard. Does anybody here complain on occasion that life might be too hard? My hand is up. You can join me if you'd like. I mean, I, it's okay. You were forgiven earlier this morning by the blood of Jesus. <laughs> we notice in our text in Numbers that they started to complain along the way. Three quick thoughts about complaining. Number one, complaining is usually ironic. It's usually ironic. Why was it ironic for the Israelites to complain? They were complaining about being in a wilderness, but the only reason they were in the wilderness was because they were disobedient. Don't, how do I say this? I should have thought this out better before I put the sermon together. Forgive me if this is inappropriate. Don't mess the bed and then complain that the room smells. I'm sorry, I, I didn't think that through before it just came out. What I'm saying is a lot of the hardship in our lives, a lot of the stink in our lives, a lot of the bad odor, a lot of the hardship in our lives is really the product of our willfulness. And then when we reap the harvest of our willfulness, we complain about the harvest. And there's just a deep sense of irony in that if there's bad things in our lives, if there's hardship in our lives, I'm not here to simplify it and say I know why it's there, but I do know why it's not there. God is not the author of evil, and he didn't bring bad things into your life. He does all things well, the Scripture says. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights, comes from above. The hardship in our lives that we're so prone to complain about, a lot of the times it's our own doing. So maybe, just as a practical action point for today, if I'm tempted to complain about a situation, it may be a cause to pause and say, why is this bad? Why is this hardship here? Isn't it interesting that Israel, at this point, Numbers 21, has spent 40 years in the wilderness eating manna from heaven, drinking on occasion water that has come out of the rock. Earlier in 1 Corinthians 10, the apostle will say what? That the rock was Christ. The bread of heaven. They've been eating it for 40 years. Years and after 40 years, they find themselves complaining. 
And in the Lenten season, which is 40 days, we lean into the life of Jesus who for 40 days was in the wilderness. But if you read the text closely, here's what it says. After 40 days of fasting, the devil came and said, if you are the son of God, take these stones and turn them into bread. In other words, for 40 days, Jesus wasn't eating manna. He wasn't eating anything. And when he was tested and when he was tried, he didn't complain. Scripture came out of the Lord's mouth. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. It is written, it is written. It says that Jesus came out of the wilderness in the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, there's a difference when we live a life of complaining, even provision seems like lack. Let's go back to Numbers 21 for a moment. Can I say that line again? When we complain, even our provision seems like lack. Well, let's look at it. What happens? The people spoke against God and Moses in verse 5. And what is their complaint? There is no food and there is no water. But what is the next line? We detest this miserable food that we just said wasn't here. In other words, our lack of gratitude and our lack of love will make our having as if it is not having at all. This is the irony of complaint. The second thing about complaining is complaining is more offensive than we realize. In other words, complaining can become the new normal for us. We can let complaint well up in our hearts and pour out of our mouths, and we are desensitized to the offense that it is. Robert Alter, who is a Jewish scholar, when he translated the Torah, he added some commentary here, and he says that they were saying this wretched bread. Now, I want you to think about that in the context of the Lord's table that we'll come to in a moment. Who in this room would dare speak of that as wretched bread? Alter would go on to suggest that in the Hebrew, this idea was that the very taste of manna in their mouths causes their stomach to retch and heave and vomit. This is so much more offensive than we realize. You see, manna, just like the rock that Moses struck, manna revealed Jesus. In the daily office this morning, we spend our time in John chapter 6, where Jesus says what? Your fathers ate bread in the wilderness that came down from heaven, but I am the bread that has come down out of heaven. Jesus himself says that manna was revealing me. Another friend of mine who's a Hebrew scholar, he said that uh, the translation for manna, we've all been taught, is what is it? But another way of understanding it is to say, who is it? 
I love that. Because the manna was more than a meal. It was a man. My wonder here this morning, my question, my contemplation is, is there manna in my life today that I'm missing? Is there manna in my life? Is there divine provision? Is there supernatural presence of Jesus in my life that I have dismissed and I'm even gone so far as to complain about? Friends, this is what the season of Lent is for. The season of Lent is for this sort of spirit-led self-examination. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, it's to go into the scriptures and say, this is an example for me. I shouldn't be thinking that I'm beyond this. No, no, I am very much capable of the same sorts of things that I'm reading about in this story. And I need to realize that if I'm complaining, and I'm talking about me, I'm not talking about you. If I'm complaining, let's just say Oklahoma weather. If I'm complaining, why am I in Oklahoma? No, that wasn't meant to be funny. It, didn't, it came out the wrong way. I'm here because God's spirit said, Mark, go to Oklahoma. Serve those people in Tulsa. That's why I'm here. And if I complain, what am I saying? Do I realize how offensive it is? It's ironic, it's offensive, and thirdly, complaining is destructive. If you will, it's like being free-range cobra farmers. You know, not the cobras in the glass boxes. Free range. When you watch, like, a Western zookeeper, they've got the glass boxes and the nice sticks. Have you ever watched an Indian cobra keeper? He just jumps right into a pit full of cobras. That's craziness, right? I don't like snakes, just putting that out there. I don't like snakes. I like spiders even less. Don't like these things. God made them. They're good on some ethereal level, but not on the ground. They're not good. A free-range cobra farmer. <sighs> Here's the reality. Snakes eat dust. On Ash Wednesday, we were told, remember, you are dust and to dust you shall return. Snakes eat dust. When we complain, it's like we offer our very bodies as an unholy Eucharist. There is an enemy who thrives on our complaint. When we complain, it's like telling the devil, here is my body given for you. Because we must remember that the original serpent emerges in the third chapter of Genesis with sin. 
And these serpents in Numbers 21 clearly are meant to bring us. God could have sent scorpions. God could have sent lizards. He could have sent gnomes. He could have sent anything he wanted. He sent snakes. These things are all very profound images that would have captivated the imagination of the hearer. God sent snakes. Just like in the garden there was a snake. This has to do with sin. And friends, when we complain like the children of Israel in the wilderness, when we complain on our journey, we invite the very destruction of our souls. I'm wondering if we even think of it this way. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, the apostle says what? That we have an enemy, and he's roaming about. And what is he looking at? He's seeking whom he may devour. Eat. Feast upon. When we complain, it's like setting cobras loose in our home. None of us would do that. It's because we fail. All of us. I'm thinking 99.9% of us struggle in this area on occasion. Can I offer an Oprah activity? I'm not the world's biggest Oprah fan, but I do remember she did something that really struck me. I was convicted when she did it because I thought, preachers, we should be doing this more often. And she's kind of a preacher. So Oprah said this. She said, I'm going to, she was doing a show on complaining. And it's probably one of the only Oprah shows I've watched in my whole life. I was actually watching it. And here's what she said. She was talking about the toxicity of complaint. And she said this, I'm going to challenge everybody in my audience today to do a 30-day complaint challenge. And that is for 30 days, you are not going to complain about anything. I wonder... Should we not learn from Sister Oprah this morning? Some of us have still been debating what we're going to give up for Lent on Lent for Sunday. So can I say this? For the rest of Lent, how about we do this sanctuary? Let's go on a complaining fast for the rest of Lent. Can we do that? And stop offering up our very souls to Satan. Stop letting the dust that is our flesh be consumed by the enemy who's going about looking whom he can devour. Let's stop doing it for three weeks. By God's grace and by the power of the Spirit, let's stop doing it. Okay? And let's call it out. I'm going to pray. I'm going to do it like a crowd anointing for Colton and everybody. I called him out on purpose. Everybody in the room. That the Holy Spirit is going to bother all of us when we complain. Because it's going to start in about, if it's not starting now, because you're complaining about the sermon, it's going to start in a couple hours. Holy Spirit, remind us. We complain about the small things. Those are the little foxes that destroy the vines. We complain about the small things, and we certainly complain about the big things. But let's let's not deceive ourselves here. There's a problem with this verse. Verse 6, the Lord sent poisonous serpents. That is not very nice, right? That's not my God. I have to tell this story real quick. I was in an interfaith Bible study uh, because there were Presbyterians involved. And um, 
That's just a joke, just a joke. No, it was an interfaith Bible study. There were, there were like Pentecostals. There were like traditional black Baptist churches. Uh, there was a Presbyterian, to be honest. And there was a Jewish synagogue. So two really funny stories on the first night that bring out this sort of issue. Uh, the first one was we sat down at tables for discussions, and one of my elders back in New York was sitting across the table from me, and I was sitting next to a young man from the synagogue. And my elder didn't realize this was an interfaith Bible study. So we're getting to know one another across the table, and he says, oh, I'm from um, Rabbi Brent's synagogue, uh, the Beacon Hebrew Alliance. And uh, my elder goes, oh, you're a Messianic Jew. And I was like, oh. And I'm looking at him trying to communicate, no, he's like a real Jew. He's not a Messianic Jew. Like, no, no, no. So I, I avert, I like bring out the fire extinguisher and like, ha, ah, like we try to laugh and like, no, he's really a Jew, you know. No, Jesus, don't. We're, we're studying Exodus. So hello, this is not, I think I've avoided all trouble. And, I, and then when the conversation got larger and all the tables get involved, I felt absolved and comforted. Because my friend, who's a Presbyterian pastor, one of his deacons says out loud in the room, we're talking about Exodus 17, where uh, there's the bitter water, and they're starving. The kids are starving. The families are starving in the wilderness. And the deaconess from the Presbyterian church says out loud, I hate the God of the Old Testament. And I was like, <gasps> and you can hear like all the oxygen come out of the room because it's filled with people from the synagogue are there. <laughs> yeah. Like, what do you say? And I looked, and I was in the back of the room. I looked at my friend who was the pastor, and his face is priceless because everybody's looking at him, and he's like, well, that was it. That's all he's like, uh, I don't. And when you read a verse like, God, the Lord, Yahweh, sent poisonous serpents it can be very troubling. And I'm remembering that deaconess. I hate this God. It's problematic to be sure, and I'm not going to fix this in the remaining couple of minutes that I have. But I will say this. There is a sense in the world in which we live that there's, we live a life that has cause and effect. We live in a, li a world that has sowing and reaping. And they're not clean lines. Like, a lot of us grew up, we're like, hey, you sow 10 bucks, you're going to get 100 bucks. Like, it's not, it doesn't work that way, and we know that. But we also understand there is this sort of creational tug of war that takes place where certain things like gravity have their effects in our realm. It's just the nature of the creational world. And when you complain when I decide to just let all sorts of murmuring bubble up in my soul. The fact is, it's going to have an effect on me, and it's not going to be good. It's not going to be positive. And I think what we have to acknowledge is that death and destruction, this is the essence of sin. Remember, Jesus in, in, in Genesis, not Jesus, Genesis chapter 2 God tells Adam, he says, the day you disobey me, you eat of this tree, you'll die. Sin and death, they're the kissing cousins that Jesus has come to overthrow. They go together. The one breeds the other, and it, 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 it's, it's a harvest of death. 
But what we have to remember is judgment reveals the nature of sin. It doesn't reveal so much the nature of God. In other words, when God is sending serpents, he's revealing the nature, the destructive, sinful nature of complaining. It kills you to do this. God is not spiteful in this sense. God is not vengeful in that sense, where God has a bad attitude and he's, well, you know what? You're going to complain about me? Here come the snakes. Take that. That is not what God is doing. God is saying, when we open ourselves up to this sort of complaining and sinfulness and disrespect, we are opening up ourselves to death. What I love about the story is the point of the story is not that God sent serpents. It's that's not the last thing God does. That's the point of the story. That even this evil, this death, God uses it for good. Eugene Peterson says this, God brought judgment on the people because of their grumbling, but judgment wasn't the last word. It's never the last word. Judgment is necessary because of our hard-heartedness. Its proper work is to open our hearts, to crack the shell of our self-sufficiency so that we can experience the inrushing grace of our loving and compassionate God. And friends, we need to look at this judgment and reverse engineer it. The judgment came in response to the complaining, but the complaining really was the child. It was the offspring of their impatience. As we said in that fourth verse at the end, it says, the people became impatient on the way. Impatience is the womb. It is the context. It is the condition in which complaint is fertilized, cultivated, and nurtured. Impatience is at the core of our challenge and our fight with our flesh. Because the fact is, the life of faith is a journey. It's a movement. It's not static. It's not a status. It's the call of Jesus who says, follow me. The essence of discipleship is not really believe this. It's follow me. It's not agree with an idea. It's walk with a person. That's the essence of the Christian faith. It's why we have a pilgrim identity. We're sojourners. We're people who are taking the scenic route whether we like it or not. It's why the story of the Exodus is there for us to see. What we have to understand is that in the midst of the waiting, we can do one of two things. We can grow in our impatience or we can grow in our hopefulness. The flesh becomes impatient because in the waiting, we're out of control. Whenever we're waiting, whether it's in line at the drive-thru or whether it's for that girl to call us back or for the pastor to finish the sermon, whenever we're waiting, we're tempted to grow impatient because we're not in control. The Christian doesn't need to be in control. Because the Christian knows that their father is in the future. 
They're father is in the past. And we wait in hope. We are people of hope. We're hopeful people rather than impatient people. When you trust in God's goodness, when you trust in God's faithfulness, when you trust in God's presence in your future, you can hope. Our impatience sets us up for our complaint, which ultimately kills us. God knows that if he took us on the short path, if he took us on the direct route, we would fall. We would fail. Go back and look at Exodus 13. As soon as he gets them out of Egypt, before they even get to the Red Sea, he's like, you know what? I'm not letting you guys go straight in because if you go straight in, this is going to be too hard and you're going to turn back and go right back to Egypt. Understand, when God takes us the long way, It's because he wants us to thrive. It's because he wants us to keep moving. He'd rather have us moving the right way, the long way, than have us moving backward away from his purposes for us. The indirect route that we may be on right now, waiting for that job, waiting for the health situation to turn around, waiting for spiritual vibrance and life to come back, that indirect root, listen, friends, it forms us. It purifies us. It refines us. It matures us. What we talked about with the men yesterday morning in our men's breakfast, we talked about that the testing of our faith produces endurance. That's what's happening when things aren't flowing at the rate we think they should And maturity really is being conformed to the image of Jesus. We don't want to ever pray for endurance. But we probably should. Think of this, uh, Hebrews chapter 12. You all know the text. Let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us. How do we do it? We do it by looking to Jesus Isn't this great? He's the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. I want to stop at that pioneer for a second. A pioneer goes out into territory where nobody's been with the implication that somebody's going to follow in those footsteps. Jesus is on the move with the expectation that we're following a pioneer. How do we persevere? How do we keep moving? We're looking at the one who's going before us and who for the sake of the joy that was set before him, look at that next word, he endured the cross, despising its shame, and he's taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. Lent calls us to return our focus to the crucified Christ. But friends, the crucified Christ is the enduring Christ. It's the Christ who hangs on the cross until he can say, it is finished. It is the Christ of John 13 who says that he loved them till the end. It is the Christ pointed to, I believe, by Isaiah 53, who did not complain, but went forth silently as a sheep to the slaughter. We endure, the believer endures, not because she is more determined, not because he has a better moral fiber, 
The believer endures because Christ has become all to them. The believer endures not because they're better than anybody else in the room. The believer endures because we have a different focus. Can I say, Christ does not motivate us. Christ is not our life coach. He is our life. He's not our life coach. He is our life. That's what Paul says in Colossians 3. If we're going to stop our complaining and live abundantly, it's going to be related to our capacity for patience, which is grounded in hope and focused on Christ who endures to the end. Christ, whose endurance is unquestionable. Christ, whose perseverance has been proven. Christ, whose resolve is unshakable. Let's pray.